You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan. This is episode 87, covering the week of August 28th through September 1st, 2017. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, the usual housekeeping items. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can do so. You can find us on social media. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for Abbeville Institute or at Abbeville Institute. You can uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. And you can subscribe to our YouTube page, Abbeville Institute. Just or Actually, it's Abbeville I-N-S-T for our YouTube page. And, of course, if you want to find those things in a one convenient place, just go to our website, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see all of our social media buttons. And while you're at abbevilleinstitute.org, if you give us an email address, we will give you a free ebook, Kirkpatrick Sales Emancipation Hell. And not only that, you'll get our daily dose of Dixie, Monday through Friday, and our weekly email, either Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast and another article of interest. Also, if you're at our webpage and you want to help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition, you can go to the top of the page where it says support. Uh, the drop-down menu, you'll see memberships for individuals, and you can go there and you can see how to donate to the Institute. You can donate for as little as $3 a month or $25 a year. If you are a student, if you are not a student, $5 a month or $50 a year, and those things will help us keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going, help keep the website going, help keep our programs going, and uh, you can, again, support our mission to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition, and it is all tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Also, you have uh, the option of donating to our Amazon Smile account. If you go uh, to the top of the page, you should see an Amazon Smile button. Or you can, if you're an Amazon Smile person, you can uh, make Abbeville Institute your charity of choice. And that'll also help throw a few pennies our way as well. So all of those things can help us continue our mission to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Okay, so this week we had a lot of good material, uh, I think some pretty interesting material, and uh, we started with a piece that uh, I've been, I have personally have been contemplating writing for a while, but um, uh, Bernard Thurzum did a, did a very good job with this, and the title is Imagine If the British Won. Now, what does he mean by that? And we have this, uh, this general opinion that's... Uh, pervading the United States right now, saying that the South was part of the quote-unquote lost cause, or that this uh, these monuments that we have uh, around the South are dedicated to the quote, lost cause. And of course, the critique is that the South was fighting for slavery and nothing but slavery. People seem to forget that the British had this exact same opinion of the American colonies in 1776. In fact, uh, Lord Dunmore, who was the uh, royal governor of Virginia, his real name is John Murray, issued an emancipation proclamation in, in uh, November of 1775, uh, making, essentially ending slavery, a war aim of the British. Now, if the British had won, would people like Jefferson and Washington and Franklin or Hamilton or Adams, any of these people, would they have been then lost causers under this type of definition? Because if the British had said 
1775 or 1776 or 1777 that they were fighting to free the slaves, which they could make that case after Lord Dunmore's proclamation and the United States uh, colonies or you know the the uh, United States separate states uh, lost uh, could then the uh, the British simply say this war was all about slavery and nothing but slavery and of course the irony in all this as Bernard points out is that the uh, Royal African Company which was uh, led by the Duke of York Charles II at one point, King Charles II, uh, was heavily engaged in the slave trade. Just like if you take the position for the United States in 1861, it was New England that was heavily engaged in the slave trade, and the South was, uh, of course, uh, profiting from that in terms of slavery itself, but the New England merchants were profiting more, uh, perhaps, from the slave trade than the South was actually benefiting from slavery itself. So, and this is where George Mason stood up at the uh, Philadelphia Convention in 1787 and said, look, you've left open the slave trade, which is a horrible thing. Uh, and uh, you can't do that. Uh, and Southerners recognized that, particularly Virginians. They recognized that uh, the slave trade was the worst element of the entire system. And this is why you know, Jefferson criticized it in the Declaration. Uh, the original drafts of it, which were removed. But the fact is, if the British had won, would the American War for Independence then be all about slavery and nothing but slavery? This is where all these arguments that somehow the uh, war in 1861 is different than the war in 1776 fall apart. The men who were fighting in 1861 from the South clearly made it clear that they were fighting for the principles of 1776 for the idea of independence. And if you start tearing down their statues and their monuments, well, then you really do need to tear down the monuments of Washington and Jefferson and, and Mason. Uh, we forget that George. there was a new monument to George Mason on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Now, of course, George Mason can be seen as more palatable because he helped write the Bill of Rights, but George Mason was a slave owner. Uh, George Mason, when he criticized the slave trade, was not very critical of slavery itself at that point. Now, uh, Mason did have a much more uh, benevolent attitude or, uh, towards, towards uh, slavery, uh, towards slaves themselves. Uh, and uh, Mason was uh, a typical Virginian in that way. Um, so... Uh, the Virginia attitude on slavery was different than other parts of the South, but regardless, all these people were slave owners, Mason. It, there, there's really no difference. And so I, I think that um, it's amazing to me how our historical amnesia is so awful in the United States that we can't even, and we can't even get out of our own way uh, when it comes to... Um, political correctness now. Uh, it's, it's depressing in some ways, uh, but this is why the Abbeville Institute exists. And uh, it's why we try to publish pieces like this, to show the hypocrisy of the entire situation. 
Now, of course, most of the American public is not for the removal of statues or monuments. They, they say leave them there. Uh, it's a very small but vocal minority uh, of Americans who want to take down these statues. And, uh, that, you know, the, the situation, we just had this terrible storm uh, in Houston and, and uh, on Texas and Louisiana. And, of course, uh, Louisiana, New Orleans had awful flooding not long ago. And the pumps that would pump the water out were broken. They would require a tremendous amount of money to fix. But yet, and, and New Orleans says, we don't have any money for that, yet they were spending millions of dollars to tear down statues. I mean, it's, this, is, this is where we've gotten to. Um, you know, our feelings are hurt, so let's do something that, uh, you know, solves our, soothes our feelings, but yet let's uh, leave these pumps that are going to actually keep water out of the city. We'll just leave those broken uh, because, you know, well, who needs that? Uh, but we, are, we feel better. Uh, about uh, our, our living because these statues are just gone, uh, and they, they, they just uh, they just make me feel terrible. That prevents me from uh, from uh, doing what I need to do in my daily life and, and being a productive citizen. This is it's all just silly stuff, but um, and of course you know the the uh, attack on these monuments is not going to subside. Uh, but I think that, uh, I, I hope that more Americans are waking up to the hypocrisy of all of this stuff, that they do realize, and of course, President Trump coming out and saying that, uh, you know, where do you stop with this? I mean, do you, do you go on to George Washington or Thomas Jefferson? I think that just making that statement, coming from the executive office in the United States, allow people to say, well, yeah, wait a second here, there, there's more to this. Uh, but you know, even things like uh, in Wisconsin, there's a there's an effort to uh, you know change the name of a school from James Madison. Uh, you change uh, and and uh, because you know he was a slave owner. And I think this is this is where we're going with some of the stuff. Now, I did uh, somebody brought to my attention last week. I misspoke on a, on an article that turned out to be uh, a hoax, though it looked very official. And I saw it several different places where there was uh, actually graves being dug up in Ohio. That's not happening. Those statues are being vandalized in Ohio and, uh, you know, toppled. Uh, and, and a lot of times in cemeteries and on private property, that is, it's not just statues in public places that are being attacked. It's statues in cemeteries that are dedicated to Confederate soldiers who are buried there. Uh, it's statues on private property. It's monuments on private property that are being vandalized and destroyed. This is the terrible thing about it. Uh, we're not even talking about public uh, public monuments all the time. In, in some cases, we're talking about monuments on private property and in cemeteries. It's ghoulish to go out. And this is exactly what happened during the French Revolution as, uh, you know, uh, graves were dug up and uh, uh, statues were toppled. And uh, it, it's, it's ghoulish. I mean, this is the type of mentality that these, these people have. It's very much a Marxist uh, revolutionary spirit. Um, to pull anything down uh, and and start over. I mean, look, the, the the French revolutionaries were the first to change the calendar in in the modern world to change the calendar uh, and get rid of Christianity. Essentially, I mean, that was the main goal to get rid of Christianity and start with uh, with year one. Uh, and of course, this happened also in uh, in Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge did this, and of course, uh, Pol Pot was uh, educated in France, and so he understood the French revolutionaries. But this is this is what we're getting to here in the United States. 
Uh, it's not just Confederate monuments that are going to come under attack, and again, they're the low-hanging fruit, but eventually other things as well, including Christian symbols. And we've seen that uh, Catholic schools are taking down statues of Mary and Jesus because they might be offensive. Uh, and this is just, it's, it's getting to the point of where you could almost laugh at it if it wasn't really happening. But uh, uh, Bernard's point, you know, what if the British had won is, is well taken uh, because the British uh, would have made the war all about slavery and nothing but slavery, perhaps, to, uh, to demonize uh, the founding generation. Of course, he says, you know, maybe they left these, uh, you know, maybe the Americans would construct statues to George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, but then they would be some type, you know, of lost causers and, uh, you know, who knows. Okay, uh, on Tuesday, we ran a review of uh, Bill Kaufman's book, Forgotten Founder, Drunken Prophet, The Life of Luther, Luther Martin. This was written by Vito Musamelli, and it's, it's uh, more of a book essay. And uh, it's, it's a very good little book. Uh, ISI, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, has been doing these Forgotten Founder uh, books recently, and some of them are pretty good. Um, and this one by, about Luther Martin is one of the one of the good ones. Brad Berzer's book on uh, Charles Carroll of Carrollton uh, is is good as well. Um, and uh, these these little books are are handy little biographies to have around. And uh, I, I think it's um, you know when I wrote my politically incorrect guide to the founding fathers, I had a whole section on uh, on forgotten founders. Now Luther Martin did not make it, but Carroll did. Um, and, uh, you know, Luther Martin is uh, one of these people in, in American history that's really forgotten. And, and, of course, he's from Maryland. So he's from a southern state, as was Carroll from Maryland. Uh, and Carroll was the, the Catholic uh, southerner in so many ways. Uh, he, he definitely was a, was a southern gentleman. Now, uh, Luther Martin's political career uh, was very interesting. Of course, an ardent, quote-unquote, anti-federalist. But, again, when you look at what the quote-unquote anti-federalists were for, they're really the federalists. They were insisting on a federal republic, uh, maintaining that as under the Articles of Confederation. And uh, this was Martin's, one of Martin's main critique of the Constitution. It centralized power too much. Now, what's interesting is after uh, the Constitution was ratified, and of course Martin had made a number of objections to the Constitution, refused to sign it at, uh, at Philadelphia when it, in September of 1787, uh, he he kind of reversed course, kind of like Patrick Henry, and uh, became uh, a proponent of the central authority. Now, Patrick Henry did so, I believe, because he didn't like Madison and Jefferson. And when Madison and Jefferson started advancing positions that Henry said, uh, you know, w w advanced before the Constitution was ratified, and of course, people swore would not happen. And now, uh, you know, Henry's saying, well, look, I warned you. Uh, this and, and so we got it, so I'm going to support it. And, of course, this political faction in Virginia factored into Henry's decision to become a quote-unquote federalist. Uh, Martin's uh, transition is not so clear, but uh, he did uh, serve as the one of the councils for, uh, for Maryland uh, when in the very famous 1819 Supreme Court case of McCulloch v. Maryland, uh, and um, his his arguments in that case are superb. In fact, one of the interesting things about that case, and I talk about it in um, my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, which comes out on the 18th of September, one of the interesting things about that case was that Martin was actually using the ratification debates uh, 
in support of his position that the bank was unconstitutional. Now, to my knowledge, that's the only time, the only time in, uh, in American history that, that someone actually used the ratification debates themselves in arguments in the Supreme Court. Uh, certainly, I don't believe any of the justices have ever done that. Uh, they might have used the Federalist essays, but they didn't use the ratification debates. Now, the Federalist essays, of course, written by Madison and Jay and Hamilton, are often, you know, people that, well, I understand the Constitution because I read the 85 Federalist essays. Uh, and yet, uh, that's just one series of pamphlets or essays dedicated to ratification of the Constitution. You find better material outside of that. And Martin's point was, well, this is what you said the Constitution would do, but now you're saying you have implied powers? Well, you said that implied powers don't exist during these ratification debates. And now you're saying the general government has them. So which one is it? Uh, so basically, he's turning the words of the friends of the Constitution against themselves. He's saying, here it is. Now, uh, you know, Joseph's story uh, in his uh, three-volume commentaries on the Constitution of the United States actually used the anti-Federalist arguments in favor of the Constitution, which is weird. He basically turned the whole argument on its head. Um, but here you have Luther Martin saying, well, wait a second here. Um, you said, you said when the Constitution was being ratified that we wouldn't have implied powers, that the powers of the general government were limited and defined. This is what the friends of the Constitution said, and now you're going beyond that. So this is a very good argument. Of course, Martin and, and you know, Martin was a great opponent of centralization in the period uh, leading up to ratification. And I think the, the, the key thing to understand about these quote-unquote anti-federalists, what their argument was essentially is that, look, uh, and even after the Constitution was ratified, uh, I think one of the strongest arguments that you can make is that if you look at the preamble, and of course uh, the preamble is often used as justification for a centralized, nationalized central authority, uh, where it says, we the people of the United States, the, the argument you can say with that is, but, but you have to put the next part, we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. Now, a union of what? It was the same union that we had under the Articles of Confederation, a union of states, not a union of people. It was clear the union had not changed. Uh, again, Story's idea on misconstruction was, well, misconstruction would be saying the states are still part of that. Uh, real, real construction is that this is a union of people, one people. Uh, it's, it's a terrible argument. It falls apart under its own weight. It's just, it's ridiculous. But uh, th this is, I think, an important argument to make. We, it was a more perfect union of states, the same union that had existed before that point. Not some new union. It didn't say to create a new union of people. It said to create a more perfect union, the same union that had existed before. And so Martin and others, I mean, I think it's important to understand who Luther Martin was and, and his arguments leading up to, uh, to uh, the, the, in opposition to the Constitution, of course, during the time of ratification. And then his arguments in the McCulloch v. Maryland uh, decision, uh, they're, they're fantastic. Uh, and I think he did a very good job. 
in that particular case. So that, by that point, his health was failing. He was he drank too much, as the title uh, says, you know, drunken uh, prophet. Uh, and so he, he eventually had strokes, and so uh, he had a miserable end of life. But uh, while he was young and vibrant and uh, you know uh, uh, active, um, his arguments against the Constitution are just fantastic and uh, should be read. And, of course, this little biography by Bill Kaufman, who's written some really good stuff. Um, Ain't My America is a good one. Uh, this, this little book is good as well. Okay, uh, the next piece we ran on Wednesday, American Presidents, Slavery, and the Confederacy by Clyde Wilson. Actually, um, this was kind of a collaborative effort between myself and Clyde. Uh, and, um, but it was Clyde's idea, so he gets the credit for the essay. Uh, the, we've, we've, we're taking down statues, we're taking down, uh, you know, images and symbols and all kinds of things. And of course the, when, when Trump, as I just mentioned before says, well, I mean, are we going to stop with Confederate monuments? We're going to take down Washington. We're going to take down Jefferson. It was interesting, uh, you know, Clyde sent me a, a list of all the presidents and who was tied into slavery. And when you start digging deeper, it gets even it gets even more interesting than that. So uh, nearly every American president, as the piece said, would have to be withdrawn from our historical consciousness if you start looking at their ties to slavery, the Confederacy, or the South. Um. 19 presidents were either slaveholders from slaveholding families or were married into slaveholding families. And that included George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren. Martin Van Buren was from a slaveholding family and he owned slaves himself. William Henry Harrison, John Tyler, James K. Polk, Zachary Taylor, Abraham Lincoln, uh, married into a slaveholding family, Andrew Johnson, U.S. Grant, who owned slaves himself, uh, Benjamin Harrison, of course, William Henry Harrison's grandson from the slaveholding family. Teddy Roosevelt, his his mother was from Georgia and uh, from a slaveholding family. Uh, also, the Roosevelts themselves were slaveholders when uh, back in the colonial period of New York. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, his father was a Confederate. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, again from the Roosevelt family. Jimmy Carter, whose, whose family were were Confederate soldiers, and. Barack Hussein Obama, who's got two on both sides of the family, he's tied into slavery. His mother's, um, his mother's uh, uh, family were slave owners, and I'll get to his father's side in a second. So all of those people, slave-owning families, Jimmy Carter's family of slave owners. Now, of these 1913, again, had family members who fought for the Confederacy. Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Jackson, Tyler, Polk, Taylor, Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, Teddy Roosevelt, Wilson, and Carter, while Presidents Harry Truman, Lyndon Johnson, and Bill Clinton all had Confederate ancestors as well. So uh, you add in, and now we're not certain if Truman's or Johnson, Lyndon Johnson's or Clinton's uh, ancestors were slave owners, but they definitely fought for the Confederacy. Uh, we know that the vast majority of Southern soldiers were not slave owners, so it wouldn't be surprising uh, if these people did not have uh, slave-owning ancestors. The Clinton campaign also used the Confederate battle flag on a Clinton-Gore pin in 1992. So here we have Southern symbols in 1992 for Clinton and Gore. Now, what about some of the other people? Well, the Bushes, George H.W. and George W. Bush, hailed from or hail from the New England slave-trading Walker family. So their family were actually slave traders, not just 
slave owners, which, as I just mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, is a much more nasty part of the institution. And Barack Obama's Kenyan family, as part of the Luo tribe, most certainly engaged in the East African slave trade, selling Africans to Muslims. And, of course, this trade was older and more pervasive than the more famous West African trade, which, of course, brought slaves into the Americas. Very, uh, a very small percentage ended up in the United States. Most made it to the Caribbean and South America. But uh, So Barack Obama's family was not just slave owners, the, the, his mother's side, but his father's side were slave traders. So, of course, Obama cannot be put up on any statue or hailed as any great guy because he suffers from the stain of slavery. Now, the rest of the presidents, several were either sympathetic to the South, they opposed the war at some point between 1861 and 1865, or had favorable opinions of the South and Southerners in general. So, Millard Fillmore, he was sympathetic to Southern slaveholders, he favored colonization, sought peace in 1864, he was labeled a traitor and a copperhead. Franklin Pierce, sympathetic to the South, had friendships with leading Confederate officials, including Jefferson Davis. He opposed the war. James Buchanan, sympathetic to Southern slave owners. Uh, he was close friends, in, in quotes, with William King of Alabama. This, the scandal, of course, is that they were actually uh, intimately involved. Uh, but um, certainly he, he loved the South. Grover Cleveland opposed the war, appointed several ex-Confederates to high offices, including... Uh, Lamar to the Supreme Court. Uh, William McKinley used a Southern strategy in 1896 to win over the support in the South. Uh, and, of course, he spoke favorable of Confederate, favorably of Confederate soldiers. Uh, Taft, Harding, and Coolidge all presided over events honoring Confederate soldiers with Confederate battle flags. And Taft actually spoke directly to a UDC group of women in Washington, D.C. Uh, so he wasn't shy about support. His, his uh, favorable impression of Confederate soldiers and the Confederacy. Uh, John F. Kennedy admired John C. Calhoun, spoke in front of the Confederate battle flag, actually received one as a gift from Senator Fritz Hollins of South Carolina. Uh, Richard Nixon had Confederate battle flag pins in 1972. Uh, Gerald Ford, por- pardon Robert E. Lee, you couldn't even get away with that at all today. Uh, Ronald Reagan portrayed Confederate soldiers in movies. And of course, Donald Trump donated $25,000 to help rebuild Jefferson Davis's Beauvoir after Hurricane Katrina. And, of course, he made this statement uh, um, right after uh, the terrible events in Charlottesville where uh, he spoke very favorably of, of uh, Confederate monuments. So that leaves 38. That's 38 of the 43 presidents who, uh, all on that list, 38. So there's five left. So that would mean maybe John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Rutherford B. Hayes, James Garfield, and Chester Arthur, Arthur and Herbert Hoover would be acceptable. But wait, John Adams was friends with Thomas Jefferson, and he tolerated slavery for the good of the Union. So he can't be seen as a great guy. If he was, he would have favored immediate abolition and uh, you know really been working against these slave owners. So he's out. Hayes, of course, ended Reconstruction. I mean, this guy's an enemy of progress because he ended Reconstruction. Uh, Garfield said that racial equality gave him a, quote, strong feeling of repugnance. He supported colonization, so he's out. Uh, Chester Arthur, uh, you know, dedicated the Washington Monument. Uh, He's a shining example of a slaveholder. And uh, he heaped praise upon Confederate veterans like John Daniel during the ceremony. And uh, Hoover, well, you could say, well, Hoover, what about Hoover? He's got none of this stuff. Well, he wasn't for the New Deal. Uh, which, uh, you know, hurt black Americans. So 
I mean, this guy's just awful. So that leaves one guy, John Quincy Adams. The one president can be honored uh, because he doesn't have any of the stains of slavery, the Confederacy, Southern sympathies, or racism. He's dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, of course, with a capital E, supposedly. I mean, I can make a case that uh, you know we could we could also eliminate him as well because he favored you know, Hamilton's economic system, which is elitist, right? But uh, perhaps we could just say you know John Quincy Adams is the only guy. Now, of course, remember John Quincy Adams served one term, didn't receive a majority in the popular vote, and won in eighteen or in the electoral college for that matter, and won in the 1824 election through the corrupt bargain. Uh, no one could stand him. So this treasury of counterfeit virtue among Yankees only goes toward so far towards American political success. We're seeing it, I and mean, people are tired of this stuff. So the South is important to winning elections. Uh, we see it over and over again, and that's real America, and that's why. And so this is why Americans are saying enough is enough with a lot of these SJWs. Enough is enough. Uh, I, I think that the backlash is going to come. I hope it will. But enough is enough. This is just this is, this is stupidity on display. Now, our piece on Thursday, we're running short on time here. I've got to get through these last couple pretty quickly. The piece on Thursday is about nullification, and I'm sure you've heard all the objections to nullification. Uh, this particular piece by Zachary Garris, who is a law student, is entitled 10 Objections to Nullification Refuted. So uh, he goes through 10 very good, uh, and of course the 10 objections are, one, nullification does not work, and he points out that's false. It has worked every time it's been used, and he even points out two Supreme Court cases where uh, these are anti-commandeering laws, and so the states cannot be compelled to enforce federal law. Uh, these are very important decisions. So if the state, if the federal government passes a law and the state says, that's fine, uh, you can pass that law, but I'm not going to enforce it in this state. Essentially, that's what they're doing. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to use state resources to enforce a federal law. So you can send in your marshals and your in your ATF and your FBI if you have enough manpower to do so and try to enforce a law. But I'm not going to use any local law enforcement or state law enforcement agencies to enforce the law. So that's essentially nullification. Uh, he points out the, the argument that the Virginia-Kentucky resolutions were rejected by the other states. He said that's that's false. Now, what's interesting is that there's actually been some work done to show that not all the states rejected them. Um, there were a few states that actually agreed with them and would have supported Virginia had it come to that, had it come to a confrontation. Uh, he says that the, the interpretation of the Constitution belongs to the Supreme Court. He says this is false. Uh, and he points out that um, you know this is the position of nullification, that the, the federal government doesn't have monopoly on its own power. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled against nullification. He says that's sort of true, uh, but... Uh, not necessarily, and this, this doesn't knock it down because the point of nullification is to have another referee when it comes to constitutional legislation outside of the court. Uh, he says nullification is tied with slavery. That's false. You know, several states were using it to oppose slavery. Uh, the Civil War ended the possibility of nullification. He says that's, that's false. Uh, it didn't. The Civil War settled nothing legally, just that the South was not independent. Uh, the Supremacy Clause means states cannot nullify federal laws. That's entirely false. Uh, only laws made in pursuance of the Constitution are, are, are constitutional. Those that are not are unconstitutional. This is exactly how the, the Constitution was sold to the states during ratification. Um, 
He says uh, a fallacy. States cannot interpret the Constitution because it was created by the people. And, of course, that's the nationalist view of the Union, which is just simply not true, as I talked about just with Luther Martin. Uh, nullification undermines the uniformity of the states and the effectiveness of federal laws. This is simply not true. Uh, the, the fact is that uh, only laws that were for the general welfare of the Union or that were uh, uh, part of the enumerated powers of the government uh, that are listed in Article 1, Section 8 are constitutional. And, of course, nullification is only against unconstitutional federal laws, as he says. Uh, and, of course, nullification risks the states undermining constitutional laws. It could happen, but it's unlikely to do so. Um, in fact, the, the, the threat is, of course, that uh, the federal government will pass unconstitutional laws and there will be no check. That's more of a reality than the states actually saying, oh, well, that constitutional law is null and void. This is, <clears throat> this is a very good piece. It's nice to see a law student writing this. And, of course, um, he's a young law student. And um, I think it's great that we have uh, people who are interested in the legal profession actually reading our material and getting involved in these ideas because they're going to be practicing attorneys and then maybe judges someday. So uh, it's important to have the legal profession actually start looking at real federalism as a, as a, a uh, an important part of the, uh, the legal ideas circulating in the United States. Uh, so it's encouraging to see that. And then uh, the last piece of the week, if you think so, say so. Um, this is uh, by another uh, lawyer from uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana. Uh, he's a native of, Mo of Mobile. His name is Houston Middleton. And um, he talks about uh, his ancestor, Benjamin Parks Middleton, who served in the Confederate States Army in the, uh, uh, in the Company uh, G of the 6th Mississippi Infantry. And uh, he says, look, he was not a slave owner, but the attack on these, this is, this is who you're attacking uh, when you start attacking Confederate monuments. And he says, quote, I cannot say for certain, but my guess is that none of these men share the current year's enlightened views on race relations in our vibrant, diverse, multicultural society. Uh, does that make them history's greatest monsters whose sacrifices and accomplishments are not worthy, uh, not worth publicly remembering for the crime of failure to conform to modern sensibilities? We must disavow our ancestors, the men who built America. And he calls it wrong thinking while dead. I mean, that's such a great phrase, wrong thinking while dead. Uh, Americans are saying, yeah, I mean, if these people wrong think while dead, we got to get rid of them. Uh, and and uh, Mr. Middleton says this exceedingly myopic view of history and human nature will, if left unchecked, leave a trail of destruction in its wake before eventually burning itself out on its own incoherence and hatred. But he says we must we must resist this by all peaceable means, all peaceable means available. If we want to live in an America, truthful America, warts and all, an America open to real diversity of thought. We must resist these totalitarian efforts to shoehorn American history into a political ideology. So if he says, if you think so, say so. This is why, uh, you know, the title of the piece is that, you know, he says, pay no attention on the names you're going to be called, but they have no meaning. And I think that is, that is, uh, you know, some of the stuff is burning out. These, these, these things that are used, people are starting to laugh at it 
because they've used it to mean anything. Anybody who thinks uh, to the right of a social justice warrior is now a Nazi. Uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, anyone who, uh, and uh, Jack Kerwick had a, had a great piece at townhall.com where he points out any, any American who thinks, uh, you know, if, even benign things like waving the U.S. flag, that becomes somehow a Nazi. Uh, but this is what the left is doing, and people are starting to wake up to this and saying, these people are crazy. Uh, they don't have any arguments. They're just thugs. They're, they're jackbooted thugs who want to beat people up, who want to silence free speech. I mean, who want to take down monuments for what? There's no reason for it. And I, I think that, uh, you know, the sad thing is that there's a lot of younger people who are, if you did it, if you looked at who's in favor of leaving, leaving monuments up and taking them down. Uh, generally, younger people are more in favor of taking them down than the older generations of people. And, of course, they're going to start running things one day. And so, who knows, 20 or 30 years from now, uh, as generations die out, perhaps it's going to be even worse. But right now, there's at least uh, an, an opportunity here to ensure, through places like the Abbeville Institute and others, to ensure that these ideas can at least be heard. Uh, the Internet's a great equalizer. We, we can talk about, well, these are why we should leave monuments up. Uh, this is what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Certainly, there's every tradition's got good and bad. Uh, but these are the things that we should learn from the Southern tradition. These are why these monuments are important. And they, they represent not just the four-year uh, crusade for independence in the South, but also the principles, the founding principles of independence, self-determination, decentralization, Luther Martin. I mean, these you, you go through all of these things, and you find that uh, there's a cogency in it all, and this is why the Abbeville Institute exists. So I hope you enjoyed our material this week. Until next time, good day. Mm-hmm.